So before I launch into the main part of my talk tonight, I just wanted to mention to all of you whom I haven't seen for so long that most of the time I was gone, I was teaching the month-long retreat at Spirit Rock. And I just want to put in a plug for sitting a month-long retreat sometime between now and when you die. (laughs) So it doesn't have to be immediate. That came as a great relief to some of the people who are listening to me on Tuesday. They hadn't ever thought of, oh, maybe I could create an intention to do it at some point in my life. I was, it's been a long time since I taught a long retreat like that, and I was just so moved to see what happened for people when they took that kind of time for practice, and to sit with them day after day in the interviews, and to hear what they were talking about, and it wasn't anything extraordinary. I don't think anybody became fully enlightened, or you know, nobody was levitating, or any of those interesting things, if that even happens ever. Um, but just the depth in their own being that they were able to go to and the kind of level of steady mindfulness that began to develop in their practice was really wonderful. So you can start, if you want, by sitting with us for five days over Memorial Day weekend, and that would be a way to begin, and I'll talk more about that later. But just to be aware that there are opportunities to sit long retreats both here at Spirit Rock, which is up in Marin County, and on the East Coast at Insight Meditation Society. There's plenty of scholarship, there's work retreat opportunities, there's ways to do it if money is an issue. So just know all of that and then think, oh, maybe someday I could sit a month-long retreat, because you could. And several of us in here have done it, and the rest of you could join us. So I hope you will at some point. So I want to talk tonight about the heart and the energies of the heart, and particularly about the practice of loving kindness. So some of you have been with us enough to know that pretty much always at the end of any sitting, any gathering here, there's a little bit of time, even if the whole evening has been about the practice of mindfulness or the practice of just being here and being present with what is, (coughs) that at the end we take a little time to do this practice of loving kindness, which is a somewhat different practice where we extend friendliness, kindness, caring, out from the heart, actually first in to our own being, and then out to all other beings. And as I've been thinking about it lately, it I thought some um, about what happens with the bell. So we hit the bell, right? And it resonates with a particular energy. And if if you hit it hard enough, and if you listen really closely, it, it resonates for a very long time after you hit the bell. It's quite wonderful, actually. And so we know that when we do this practice of loving-kindness, and particularly when we do it 
for ourselves because it's important always when you do that practice to start by extending loving kindness to yourself before you extend it to others. It's said that you can't really do it for other people unless you can do it for yourself. Um, And when we do that, sometimes if you do it enough, if you make it a really regular part of your practice, the whole mind-body begins to resonate a little bit with it the same way that the bell does. But you know what can happen with the bell, right? You can hit it, and then you can do this. And so much for the resonating of the bell, it doesn't last very long when we do that. And in the same way, sometimes when the energy of kindness and friendliness begins to build and develop in ourselves, then there come those moments when we contract and we pull in and we stop it. It's like, no, can't do that, it gets too scary, or there's other stuff that's around and so really the interesting question I think is how can how can we not do that? How can we keep this energy up, keep it woven into the fabric of our practice and of our being so that we meet ourselves and all the other beings around us with kindness? And I've been, as I said, particularly reflecting about doing loving-kindness practice for ourselves. I've done um, quite a bit of it myself. I did one six-month period of doing no other practice except loving-kindness for myself, which I thought sounded terribly selfish at the beginning. And it actually turned out to be very productive and really fruitful. And I've been embarked now for a while on another period, so I don't know how long this one is going to be. And so in this practice of loving-kindness, the image that the Buddha gives us in the sutta is of a mother holding her beloved child, wanting every good thing for that child. So any of you who have had children or nieces or nephews or cats or dogs or anything little that you can hold and really enjoy loving, you know what that experience is like when you hold this being And you really want every good thing for it. And so the invitation is actually to do that for ourselves. And a really, really wonderful way to begin came to me not so long ago um, from a student, actually. Somebody that I was talking to at a retreat. I was teaching on the East Coast. (coughs) And she came in and she said, you know, she said, I've been thinking about this practice of loving-kindness for myself. And she said, somewhere along the line, I realized that all around the world, there are people who, in their practice of loving-kindness, say, may all beings be happy, may all people be happy. And she said, I realized that means me. Imagine. It means me. It means you. That there are beings out there, there are beings in your past, there are people who have loved you. Some You would not be sitting here tonight if that were not true. You might not have had the perfect parents or the perfect teachers or the perfect aunties or grandmas or whoever, but some, or the perfect partners, we don't usually get those, but 
you know, somewhere along the line, someone has loved you. And someone has wanted good things for you. Probably several someones. And, you know, parents, relatives, teachers, spiritual guides, various people along the way who have wished you well. And how often do do we let that resonate in our being? Most of the time, if I'm thinking about somebody who's, you know, wishing me kindness, pretty quickly I contract and I stop it and I don't let it reverberate in my own being. And so we're really invited to do that. And at the very least, there are all those people all over the world, just as we will do later this evening, who will say, may all beings everywhere, all around the globe, all the people, all the creatures, may they all be happy and free from suffering. And there you are. That's you. And somebody, many somebodies, are wishing that for you. So I think one of the things that I've been thinking about is that it's really useful, not only when we do this practice, to say the phrases of loving kindness. So some of you who might not be so familiar with the practice, often this practice is done by repeating phrases that are phrases of goodwill. So often it's things like, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be protected from harm, may I be free. Those are some of the most common ones. And you just kind of say them over and over and over again. But you know, it's real easy to just say them, right? You just kind of say them. May I be happy, may I be peaceful, yeah, 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 may I be healthy. And we don't really think about it. And it's very, very helpful to take a little time to reflect on your intention for this phrase, whatever your phrase is. And you might not use any of the ones that I'm talking about tonight, but probably your phrase, if you have your own phrases, will have some of the flavor of the ones that I talk about. So it's, it's um, probably useful to consider them. So to really, you know, if, if you find a phrase of goodwill or friendliness to use for yourself and for others, to allow yourself to kind of say it slowly sometimes and to let it sink in. And even, this sounds um, a little different from some of our instructions sometimes, even to think about it. You're welcome to think about it. You know, about what, what do you mean when you say this phrase? So may we be peaceful. May I be, may I be peaceful. You know, and as, as I've been, again, considering this, I've thought, how often when I sit down on the cushion do I find out that I'm really at war? I'm at war with myself. I'm at war with my neighbor. I'm at war with, you know, someone else, some, you know, somebody who's being difficult in my life. Our lives are just filled with little wars that go on all the time. And there's distress and aversion. And you sit down, happened to me tonight, and all of a sudden there's this argument going on. You know, you're saying, "Mm, this is why I'm right and why you're wrong and why you should listen to me. And there I am fighting the battle again. So may I be peaceful when I think about that really has meaning. You know, may I be peaceful, may I be free 
from conflict. May I find a way to be moment to moment that's not all about conflict and argument and confrontation. May I just be able to be here. When those things come up, it's not all entirely bad news, you know, because then you're seeing something. It's like, oh my goodness, look at that, I'm at war. And you begin to see, oh, that's where I'm attached. That's where I'm filled with aversion. That's where I'm obsessed. And, and then you can begin to work on it. So can, you, you know, can we bring our mind back just to this present moment? Which for the most part is usually okay. You know, here you are. You're sitting here on your cushion. You're not in the middle of the war. And really be present with where you are wishing yourself ease and peace. You know, can we be peaceful? Maybe just one moment at a time. So, another phrase is, may I be protected? And this, for me, has been a very, very powerful phrase. (coughs) Because I don't often see myself as somebody who needs protection. You know, I'm strong and I'm capable and Let's forget about this protection stuff, you know. Who needs protection? I'm the protector. Right? And so to really begin to soften into the notion that perhaps I could use a little protection once in a while has been quite an interesting place in my own practice. And so here, when we come to sit, you know, sitting and practice actually is a place of protection. You come here to the center, or you come to your own cushion. You may come for 20 minutes, or you may come for half an hour, or you may come for an evening like this. And for a little window of time, you step out of the ordinary demands of your everyday life, all of the hurly-burly of it and things going on. And of course, when you sit here in a group like this one, you're also with like-minded people who are trying to do this practice, who are often one way or another following the precepts of the practice in which we agree we're not going to harm each other and we're not going to harm ourselves. So it's really wonderful to be in a community of people who have those basic agreements of learning how to be present, learning how to have an open heart, and learning how not to harm. Because we're always vulnerable. Every one of us is incredibly fragile, you know? And we forget it sometimes. We forget how easily the body is wounded or, or even dies sometimes rather unexpectedly. And we forget how easy it is to get sick. We forget how easy it is to be hurt in our emotions, in our hearts. And then something happens, and we go, oh, look at that, I'm vulnerable. And sometimes we get angry. What is this? I'm vulnerable. I'm not supposed to be vulnerable. And so when gathering together actually gives us a place where we can bring that vulnerability. And even sitting in your everyday life at home gives you a place where, okay, for a few minutes, no phone, no email, nothing, just sitting with the breath and the body, You can let yourself be with your vulnerability. Check it out. See what's happening. And and even begin to be a bit protective of yourself as well as acknowledging that sometimes it's helpful to have 
others who can also protect us. May we be healthy. Mm. Wonderful, huh? I'm just coming out of a long bout with bronchitis and upper respiratory stuff. and um, It's a wonderful wish to be healthy. And sometimes we forget how wonderful it is to be healthy, except then we're not, you know. And often in a group like this, we're not all fully healthy, you know. Some people have various diseases and disabilities, and we have to learn how to live with whatever that is. And, and in some cases, sometimes in a group like this, even some people are very seriously ill. So wanting health, you know, wishing yourself health, can be a little tricky sometimes when you know already that you're not. And I often think of health as really being a question of wholeness and healing. It's not necessarily, you know, 100% able to go to the gym and do all of those things. It's more a question of how can I be whole and how can I even be healed even when things aren't entirely 100% fine in my body. And so can we meet each of the events that come toward us with, as a teacher, for example, learning from the times when we're ill or the times when we're wounded or from a particular situation in the, the body and using it as a way to become more whole in our own being. You know, can we, in any given moment, find the place that is whole and healed? And so it's really almost more a geography than it is a state of being in any particular part of your body. So then another of the phrases is, may I be free? And when I've done this practice, sometimes when I'm a little cranky, I think, well, free from what? You know, I'm an American, I'm free. You know, sort of, maybe. And so what is this freedom stuff? What do I want to be free from? And currently, one of my current ways of working with this phrase is to add on, may I be free from the prison of my stories? May I be freed from the prison of my stories, uh, the prison of my rigid and sometimes really unyielding views of how things are, which is a pretty important piece of practice, actually. May I be freed from my stories. We all have stories about ourselves, about who we are, about what we can and can't do. We have stories about each other, about who each other is and what this person is like or is not like. And (coughs) the mind just generates endless stories. You may have noticed this on the cushion. And they're very, very sticky. We get very, very caught in them. And sometimes we live out of our stories rather than out of the reality of any given moment in time. And so, you know, this is easy actually to see because all you have to do is think about the time when you fell in love with someone who turned out to be the wrong person, right? But you thought, when you fell in love with them, that they were great, right? They were fabulous. 
the perfect person, you finally met him or her, you're going to spend the rest of your life with them. And then six weeks down the line, you go, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? This person is not at all who I thought they were. And you had a whole story that for a while, hopefully not too long, but sometimes we do it for a long time before we wake up, that you had. And we do it the other way. Sometimes we meet someone and we really dislike them. I don't like this person. They look just like someone you once knew or whatever. And we also then keep them away. And then something happens and we have a chance to find out who they really are. And we go, oh, that person's actually quite lovely. You know? And you realize that your story in that case wasn't true either. Lots and lots of stories. We could have a lot of fun and laughs probably if we sat here and told stories about our stories. And But the important thing is to begin to understand that this is the nature of the mind to do this. And if we live in them and if we believe them, then we're caught. And it's a very, very good question always when the mind is generating a lot of stuff to go, is this is this worth listening to? And the mind puts out a lot of stuff that isn't even worth the time of day. Trust me. And it's it's not even remotely close to true. Sometimes it's a little harder to decide. But having that place of questioning is really, really useful. Is this is this true? And then the last, may I be happy. Happy is a little tricky. Because we tend in our culture to think of happy as sort of the smiley face thing and up and, you know, there's not a cloud in the sky and everything's fine. So I've sometimes shifted and used, may I be contented? May I be contented? Contented is a nice word. We don't use it so very much. This doesn't mean may I be complacent. It's not about pretending that things are fine when they're not. It's more like... Oh, is it is it possible to be present and to be contented? Hmm, kind of, without it having to be perfect. We so want things to be perfect. In developmental psychology, there's a very interesting concept about mothers, which is not the perfect mother, but the good enough mother. And the person who developed this theory actually used that phrase, the good enough mother. And I've always loved that. So you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be good enough. So, you know, may your life be good enough. May your sitting be good enough. It might not be the perfect sitting, but maybe it's the good enough set. Maybe it's the good enough job or the good enough relationship. May, you know, may we begin to relax into our lives and let them be good enough. Which, again, you know, if, it's, if there's something that's really a problem, it doesn't mean don't address the problem. It just means don't hold out for perfection. It's true, you will be a great deal happier that way, actually. You know? There's a wonderful line in a poem that I often read at retreats. I can't quote it exactly, but it says something like, the pursuit of perfection is a recipe for nothing but pain. Nothing but pain. 
So perfection has nothing to do with happiness. Good enough has a great deal to do with happiness and contentment. So you know, we could create an intention for this to be the spirit of our practice. To do this practice of loving kindness for ourselves and for others, you know, to wish a heart filled with peace, you know, without being caught in war, to be inclined toward protecting yourself and others, to find you know, to be quite interested in, all right, in any given moment, where is the place that is the place of wholeness and health? No matter what your particular situation is. To step out over and over again of the prison of your story. It doesn't mean that you won't get caught in the next story or even the next repetition of the same story. There you are again, in prison again, oh well, and you know, you can let yourself out because this particular prison can let yourself out and, and try again. And then to relax into the way things are. You know, this is the way it is, is a wonderful instruction for practice. And contentment is a great deal about softening into the way things are. If you sit with a group regularly, or you could do it even on your own, you know, there's bells, right? There's a bell at the beginning of the sitting, and a bell at the end of the sitting, and a bell at the end of the evening. And if you go on a retreat, of course, there's endless bells, all kinds of bells, all day long. And so you could use, you know, you could probably even, I know that iPhones have an app that is a meditation bell, actually. So you could even create, if you have an iPhone, you could create, and maybe some of the other phones have these too, a situation where the bell every now and then just rings. And you could remind yourself to let that place of loving kindness resonate in your own being for a little bit so that you more and more live out of it. So I think I'll stop there. That's long enough, plenty long enough. And see if you have any questions or comments. I'm also happy to answer questions about longer retreats, but maybe we could stay with Meta for a minute. Please, Michelle. Um, Sunday, Sunday evening we were sitting with this small group and we did this um, exercise of um, you know, noticing the person who was sitting to your right and setting the intention of sitting that sit for the person to ah, your right. Nice. And um, it... it um, it made the sit really, really rich and sweet to know that you're gifting this act of mindfulness to someone else. And so, when when you opened the sit and you, and you reminded us that you know we really do this practice for all beings, <coughs> I I noticed you know the group of people chatting out on the sidewalk, and I said I'm going to sit this sit for those people. Oh, I don't nice. even know. And so it was like. It, it, it makes it feel so much more valuable to really pay attention and to really be present and know that I'm, I'm breathing this mindful breath for you. Uh, and doing and so thing. how was it on Sunday also to know that the person on your left was sitting for you? It felt 
felt sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it it, 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 it was like combining the mindfulness practice with loving kindness uh-huh. and merging the two. Uh-huh. 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 I'm very interested in this place of remembering that others are holding us with loving kindness and extending to us. It's not something I thought about a lot. It's one of the great things about teaching is sometimes these students come in and say, I just thought about, wow, thank you, perfect. And I actually talked with her on the phone just a couple of days ago, and I said, thank you so much for that. It's really great. I've been talking about it a lot, and people are finding it really helpful. So this woman who's a pediatrician in Philadelphia is really your teacher for this evening. Um, and it's a wonderful thing to remember and, and a great thing to do. You know, maybe we'll try it. Yeah. Any other questions? Please, Mike. I'm interested. I like, I've always kind of instinctively liked the concept of good enough. That, that's always fit well in my life. But I think there's been a conflict between that and the intent to whatever. Improve. Um, uh-huh. Try harder. I mean, whether it's intent to enlighten, and uh, be careful about the intention for enlightenment. But okay, yeah, keep going. But, but, I mean, it's, it's there. Yeah, sure, sure. And but remember that intention is—it's very much like setting a compass course, <coughs> right? You're going to go north, but you're not. You know, just like airplane pilots say, you know, they say they're never on course. They're always adjusting. So, and in life, we are always adjusting because we're rarely exactly on course. And so good enough might be that you keep coming back to the intention. But what often happens is that when we discover that we've all, you know, you've you've headed north, but all of a sudden you've drifted off and you're almost at east. Then what happens for most of us? The judgmental and critical mind kicks in and beats ourselves up. What are you doing? You said you were going to go north, and here you are goofing off going east. What is this? And then, you know, after you've beaten yourself up enough, Maybe you drag yourself back. But guess what? After a while, if you beat yourself up every time you drift off, do you come back? No. You go away. It's not actually good behavioral practice. So the, the good enough is like, oh, look at that. I'm drifted off. Come back. Yay. Good job, Mike. You know, and then you drift off the other direction. And then you come back. Good job. And so that's the good enough place, I think. Where, where does the where does the um, your caution about intent to enlighten? Just that people can really lock into I am going to get enlightened, uh-huh. and most of us aren't entirely sure exactly what that means, and um, it can create a lot of distress in the practice. I, I wouldn't say that I know too many people that I consider to be fully enlightened. And I certainly am not. Um, and so it's really, really useful to have that as a direction and that there are moments. I think of enlightenment as something that happens in moments and we might touch on it. And one of the definitions is, is absolutely no greed, hatred, or delusion. 
So you might have a moment of no greed or hatred or delusion, but the next day you might be wallowing in attachment. Right? Oh, too bad, where's your enlightenment? You know, so it's still that coming back, coming back. My sense then is that that you have these moments, and initially they're really spaced far apart, and then gradually perhaps they come closer and closer and closer together. But you know, there have been people on retreats who sort of decide, okay, this is it. The Buddha did it. He sat down under the tree and he stayed up all night. And usually about four o'clock in the morning they go. Mm-hmm. I think it does take a strong intent to say, yes. I, I, I have one life that I'm aware of to, be, to do this. Yeah. this. This is it. This is now. And you're going to be as awake as possible. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Absolutely. I'm not going to waste my time. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oops, one more. I like the notion of your denial and uh-huh. And even more, um, I think I can say it, but uh, celebrating the fact that you went on. Uh-huh. And because then you sort of wake up and, and become more aware beyond mm-hmm. where you were when you were on. Especially if you really pay attention. It's very, very helpful if you veered off. Not to, in a sense, not to come back too quickly, but to take time to be mindful of where it is that you are. And if you're caught in attachment, or even if you're caught in the proliferating mind, to begin to feel how uncomfortable that is, actually, can be very helpful and really inspiring for coming back or not wandering off quite so quickly. Yeah. Okay, let me just make. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.